Good morning again, everybody. Hey, thank you. I was 35 when I came here. That was in 1847, I think. No. Um, you can turn with me if you like to Luke 19. Um, it's not going to be real hard to follow along because we're really just going to look at one verse. Uh, it is, um, I kind of raised my eyebrows when Wes started preaching. I wasn't here, but I, when I watched it, um, because it's the same passage that he took you to last week. Uh, it's the passage about Zacchaeus. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but J- Jesus on his way into Jerusalem was going through Jericho, and, and there was this tax collector who was very much an outcast and hated by all the people, and he uh, wanted to see Jesus, and, and he climbed that tree because he was a short guy and he couldn't see Jesus. Jesus looked up into the tree, saw him, called him by name, said, Zacchaeus, come down. I have to eat at your house today. Uh, they had lunch over at Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus was so overjoyed, he repented, he he showed all sorts of evidence of his faith in Jesus Christ. He was so thrilled that, that Jesus had found him. And um, Jesus then announced at the end of the passage, salvation has come to this house. And then in Luke 19, verse 10, Jesus says this, and this is probably as close to a, a mission statement as he ever gave himself um, during his time on earth. He said this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Go ahead and hang on to that verse because we're going to be spending some time there, not just today, but really in in the next two weeks as well. Um, Just this one verse. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was um, scrolling through my Facebook feed, um, which is always interesting. And as I I often do, I came across an article um, from a magazine called The Atlantic, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with The Atlantic. It used to be called The Atlantic Monthly, I think. That magazine has been around almost 200 years. It's it, uh, a very old publication. It covers all sorts of different topics, very long, thoughtful articles. And uh, it's, it's, um, I would say lately it's become probably the flagship publication of what you might call the, the liberal intelligentsia in the U.S. If, if you want to know what urbane, sophisticated, well-informed people are thinking about, you read The Atlantic. Um, and and I, know that, I know that face, the Facebook's algorithm has a lot to do with this, so I know that I'm not always getting a representative sample of their articles, but it seems to me, from what I see, that this very elite, very secular and sophisticated magazine has a surprisingly large amount to say about evangelical Christianity. Um, I've seen probably a dozen articles in recent months where the authors are commenting on Christianity and on the church, and especially on the evangelical church, and usually pointing out all of our problems and all of our hypocrisy in excruciating detail. Not always, though. The commentary is not always unfair, and as a matter of fact, it's not always really one-sided either. In fact, The Atlantic has published articles in, in recent years by well-known uh, Bible-believing Christians like Tim Keller and Russell Moore and a few others. And to be honest, I, I rarely read the complete article because I am too cheap to subscribe to the magazine. And, and so I usually get caught off after a few paragraphs unless I want to go look for like a pirated version somewhere, you know, a reprint somewhere else on the internet. Um, but one thing you can do for free, uh, legally, on Facebook, of course, is you can scroll down and you can look through the literally hundreds of comments left by the readers of these articles and what they have to say about them, you know, as they weigh in with their opinions. And so for me, 
reading through the comments on Facebook on articles that appeared in the Atlantic magazine is a pretty good way for me to figure out, get an idea of how the typical college-educated cosmopolitan crowd is thinking and talking about Christianity, about the church, and about the gospel. And uh, most of it is, is actually pretty discouraging. Uh, there are some people, of course, who are utterly hostile, just completely against it, saying that Christianity is pretty much responsible for all of the world's evils and that the church is a tool of oppression or it's an arm of the Republican Party or whatever, and they just hate anything to do with the Christian faith. But I will tell you that that it seems that those folks are actually in the minority. Uh, Most people out there, um, they may not have a, a really good idea, and certainly they don't have a very high opinion of the church. Uh, We're not very popular out there in that world, and yet people still seem to have, and I think it's fair to say this, they have a pretty high opinion of Jesus himself. They like Jesus. Jesus gets high marks. At least the Jesus that they know, the Jesus as, as they would conceive of him. I will tell you that most people today are not against Jesus, not by name at least. They, most people will say Jesus was a very good man, an excellent man, maybe even one of the best men, if not the best man who ever lived. He was a great teacher. He was a courageous leader who stood up for the, the, the marginalized and oppressed people in the society of his day. And his ethical teachings, you know, like the Sermon on the Mount, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and love your enemies and, and, and all that stuff, that is powerful stuff. And people will agree that those ethical teachings were centuries ahead of Jesus' time. They'd even admit that in a lot of ways those teachings of Jesus form the basis of our moral thought today, especially in the West. Not to mention, if you think about it, Jesus made all the right enemies, didn't he? You know? Roman colonizers and, and stuffy religious leaders. I mean, those people are the evil ones, right? So, so Jesus gets high marks for that too, making all the right enemies. And unfortunately, the enemies were a little bit too intense because Jesus' ideas were so dangerous that eventually they put him to death. And they'll say, well, he died as a martyr. He died maybe as a nonviolent protester Uh, Maybe he just died to show the world that it's better to die for what you believe in than to give in to hate and revenge. And that's all good stuff. The problem, many people would say, here's the theory, the problem is that, well, what happened was after his death, Jesus' followers decided to turn him into a god. You know, they made up all sorts of legends about and miracles, and, and, and they even claimed that he rose from the dead And then guys like the Apostle Paul came along and did something even worse. They hijacked Jesus' teaching and they made him into sort of a savior and they they, they built this whole theology around him when Jesus, in, in, in fact, never claimed to be anything like that. That's what they would say. But there was one comment on this recent article that I, I was reading that I have seen multiple times before and it seems to me that it is becoming, this is becoming an increasingly common objection to Christianity. The objection goes like this. I can't accept Christianity as viable or as true because it features human sacrifice, which makes it a primitive and barbaric religion. They will say this, how could it be okay for God to punish one man for the sins of another, even if that man willingly offered to die? How is an innocent man 
dying on a cross to appease the wrath of an angry God, any different from a virgin getting thrown into a volcano by some primitive tribe to appease the wrath of their sun god. It's unjust, it's barbaric, and it's morally repugnant. Now, how do you counter that objection? Do those people have a point? Does, do they raise a valid concern? How do you answer it? Because you're going to hear it. I would suggest to you that the answer is kind of hidden in plain sight right here in the verse that you're looking at, Luke 19.10. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. What I want to do over the next three weeks, I, I want, this is going to be very short, simple sermons, and, and what I want to do is just look at the three verbs that you'll see in this sentence. Came, seek, and save. And each week, what we're going to do is we'll, we'll be a very simple message presenting just one important point, but all three of these verbs here are going to help us answer one particular question, and the question is this, why the incarnation? Why the incarnation? What, what is the real reason for perhaps the most astounding miracle that God ever performed, the Christmas miracle? Why did God the Son become a man? What did it accomplish? And today we're just going to do a, a, a little meditating on this word, came, came, okay? The Son of Man came. Um, when you fill out forms at different times in your life, you know, your, your tax returns or your driver's license application or school forms or whatever you have to fill out at different times to establish your age, how old you are, there's usually a line on that form that, that, that it goes like this, date of what? Date of Date of birth, right? Date of birth. Notice how it doesn't say date of arrival or date of coming. It doesn't say, what's the date of your coming into the world? No, it says date of birth. Date of birth. Nobody sings happy coming to the world day to you. They sing happy birthday. It represents a beginning, a beginning, not, not an advent. See, you're... you're your birthday cake has birthday candles on it, right? Jesus' cake has Advent candles on it. This is not a cake, but if, if it were, they would be Advent candles, okay? Not birthday candles. There's a difference. Yes, as a child, Jesus had a birthday. It probably was not December 25th. I hope you realize that. We don't know when it was, but as, as a child, Jesus had a birthday, but as the Son as the Son, capital S, he didn't have a birthday. There was no birthday. This little baby in the manger in Bethlehem, he had a past. Not the kind that we think about, but he had a past. And in Jesus' case, that past was a lot longer than nine months in the womb. In fact, it was a lot, lot, lot longer than that. That's probably why Isaiah says this in his prophecy about this event. He says, unto us a child is born. And unto us a son is what? Given. And yes, it's possible to read too much into those words. I get that. Just like it's possible to read too much into the word came in Luke 19.10. But only when you consider those verses in isolation. Not when you consider that Jesus almost never talks about his birth. He basically never talks about his birth. But he talks all the time about his coming. His coming. He's always talking about that. He told Pontius Pilate, for this cause I came into the world 
to testify to the truth. He said to Nicodemus, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He cried out to anyone who would listen in John chapter 12. He said, I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me will stay in darkness. And I could point you to many, many other places where Jesus talks about his coming. The whole issue around which all the controversy revolved about Jesus in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, is the issue of Jesus' origin. His origin. It, it wasn't so much a matter, if you look at the content of the arguments, it wasn't so much, who is this man? It was, where did this man come from? Where did he come from? Did he come from Nazareth? Did he come from Bethlehem? Jesus says, neither. I came into this world from my Father in heaven. He sent me. That's where I came from. That's where I came from. And as a matter of fact, this, this title used in Luke 19.10 is the Son of Man. That's how Jesus refers to himself in this verse. And in fact, it's his favorite name for himself if you go through all the Gospels. Well, where did Jesus get this name, the Son of Man? Did he just make it up? Was it kind of a catchy phrase that he thought would be good to, you know, to have people recognize him by? Or was there something more to it? It is easy for us today to assume when we hear that, especially with the word man in there, that we assume the word son of man refers to Jesus' humanity, and we, we assume that the word son of God, or the phrase son of God, refers specifically to Jesus' divinity, that he was God. And there's something to that, but in reality, that's not, that's not the case. That's not the case. In reality, Son of God, Son of God, yes, obviously it has divine overtones of, of Jesus being God. But Son of God is most often, if you read the Gospels, identified and connected to Jesus' role as Messiah. Because the Jews understood their Messiah, their Christ, at least to be in some sense the Son of God. On the other hand, Son of Man, Son of Man does have a connection to the Old Testament. And it's actually a reference to a figure in Daniel chapter 7. You, if you want to look it up, it's Daniel 7, 13, and the verses around that. It's a prophecy that Daniel was giving. And, and in this prophecy, there's, there's a, someone who has the appearance of a man, but this person receives an eternal throne from the ancient of days and ends up being worshipped, worshipped by all the peoples and nations of the earth. So that's not a man. The name actually speaks, the name Son of Man actually speaks not only of Jesus' humanity, but also of his divinity. The Son of Man title is a title for God in the form of man. God in the form of man. If you had to find a, a synonym for it, maybe the best phrase would be the incarnate one. The incarnate one. John says it this way, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John says the Word, later on in the, in the chapter, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is not a man that we turn into a God. He is the eternal God who turned into a man. Or more accurately, he added humanity to his divinity without losing his divine nature. And yes, that's a mystery. But we didn't have to turn Jesus into a God. He already was God, the eternal God, the God, the true God, the only God. Now, this is all really basic theology, and I don't hear anybody here arguing with me, but why am I belaboring this point so much? 
I want you to think about that common objection to the validity of Christianity and the gospel, the one about human sacrifice. The people that would say that in going to the cross, Jesus was just a really, really good man who volunteered as tribute because a wrathful God needed to pour out his anger on somebody. Listen, if Jesus is just a man, no matter how exalted a man he is, no matter how wonderful and generous and unselfish a man he was, if he was just a man, then those people might have a pretty good point. But if in reality Jesus was the preexistent God of the universe, eternally begotten of the Father, God the Son, creator of all that was made, Lord of time and space, and he was sent on a rescue mission, and he came into this world to save us, then that changes everything. Because, listen, if the incarnation is true, if the incarnation is, is right, if Christmas really is what the Bible says it is, then what happened on that cross was not God just exchanging the life of one man for the lives of a bunch of others. He was actually pouring out all of his divine wrath on himself. On himself. Do you see how different that is? Jesus not only willingly went to his death, he was in on the plan before the world ever began. But more than just answering objections about the justice of the cross, I want you to think about what else it means that God was, as it says in 2 Corinthians, in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The question I ask is this. What kind of a God loves like that? What kind of a God? Who is this God? How, how, you see, the, the fact of the incarnation, you have to remember, it doesn't take away the pain of Calvary. The fact of the incarnation does not take away the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane when the Son, in all his vulnerable humanity, is dreading what is about to happen to him, and he's begging his Father to find another way. The reality of the incarnation does not remove the horrible sense of betrayal and loneliness that Jesus experienced as his life was being drained from him on that cross, and it also doesn't take away something that I've become intensely aware of ever since I became a father 31 years ago. It doesn't change the unspeakable misery that God the Father had to go through watching his only begotten son being mocked, mistreated, and tortured and not being able to intervene. To the point where, as the son finally cried out in desperation, Dad, where are you? He had to cross his arms and turn away and not even answer. What kind of a God does that? I'll tell you what kind of a God does that. The God of Christmas. The God of the incarnation. Why did he do it? There are several reasons, and we'll talk about a couple more of them in the next two weeks, but the most basic reason, why did he do it? Because it was the only way to take all of the burden of our sin upon himself so that we wouldn't have to bear it. Amen. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He didn't have to come, but he did. The Father didn't have to send him, but he did. And because of that amazing love, you and I can be saved. This Christmas season, will you let the truth of that hit you in the heart? What child is this? What child is this? 
What child is this indeed? He's the God of eternity. And he came at infinite cost to himself to rescue us. Amen. Let's pray as the elders come forward for celebration of the Lord's Supper.